Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're joined by Michael Lieberman. Now, here on the podcast, we believe in the adage, revenue is vanity and value is sanity. It's not that we don't like revenue, we do. But building a large company doesn't always translate directly into a valuable business. Sometimes the very best companies, the ones that fetch the higher offers, are in small corners of the market nobody knew about. And today on the show, we're covering one of those stories. You're going to learn how Michael Lieberman built Datastay, a company that fetched more than 10 times revenue despite having just nine employees. Here to share with you his story is Michael Lieberman. Enjoy. Michael Lieberman, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this company, Datastay. How did you guys get started? So the history of Datastay is kind of one of those interesting things. It actually started back when I was 17. Um, somebody we wanted to build a website. This is around way, way, way back. And uh, I was a kid hanging out, doing fun kid things, and uh, decided that I'd go visit this particular company and see if I could sell them a website. Um, ended up not selling them a website, but rather a CD-ROM, which they were going to sell, send to their customers um, with CAD drawings, basically the illustrations of a component that goes into cars. Uh, and at that time, it was, it was huge money for me. So I thought that was great. Good summer job. Did that. Did that the next year. Did it for a few years. Then did an MBA as I was still doing that. And after that, got a job. But was still working on this project on the side. And then long story short, after uh, one of their customers asked me to build something for them, custom, I developed something for them, uh, which was, happened to be a $6 billion automotive parts manufacturer. I thought, okay, maybe there's something here. Uh, met my co-founder, who was a friend, um, would just hang around at the coffee shops kind of thing and said, you're a real developer guy. I'm not. Why don't we get together and start building something? And that was the genesis for, for Datastay. And uh, what were you building? Like in layman's terms, if I'm not a techie, like what, what was, how, how would you describe it in layman's so, terms? So I'd say the initial thing was we had somebody who was made, stamping metal parts. It would go to a brake manufacturer that would eventually get into a, a car vehicle. Um, and they needed a way to share all these AutoCAD drawings with people. AutoCAD and, is a software application that that engineers and designers use. Right, the, okay. they would make the, the drawings or the illustration of the component, the tolerance, where holes are, all these different types of things. And this is a relevant yeah. point because it all comes full circle in our story here today too. Um, so they needed to get that to customers because they, they needed to build around those drawings, right? So this is what this piece looks like. It's a piece of metal. You got to go add, add additional manufacturing to that. They need to ensure that they knew exactly what sizes were and so forth. So. They could obviously in the old days, how did they do? I mean, assuming they they had like printed instructions. Like if we go back to the 1950s, like yep. if BMW needed new brakes on a car, they would draw it. Someone would like like literally like in a drafting table would presumably draw it and then put it in a tube and ship it by mail. Is that so? When I was in grade nine, we still had drafting. Okay, right. so that, that's how long I'm ago. Old. Right, yeah. so I did drafting, uh, electronics, all these different cool. Cool classes that I don't know are, are offered that much anymore. I also don't know how relevant they are at, the, at that age nowadays. But uh, so, yeah, that's exactly how they did it. It was paper-based. And then 
when we first started working with them, I think most of it was was still, you know, you printed it out or maybe they they emailed files. Email was maybe not the best way, but they were they were getting the files there. And whichever way they did it, it wasn't it wasn't easy. Um, especially when there were, you know, if you think about the number of vehicles there are times the number of models, times the number of, you know, different configurations. There there were a lot of these drawings. And obviously they had to support them all the way back to really the first production vehicles. So Right. Yeah. So how'd you make it easier for them? So they had this huge set of drawings and we figured out a way to, in essence, build a searchable catalog that initially the concept was, let's do this online. But, you know, these engineers weren't really embracing the internet as of yet. So uh, the idea was, let's let's send them a CD-ROM. CD-ROMs are kind of in their heyday there. Uh, the, the funny thing about it all was they couldn't just send the CD-ROM. They actually sent the, the CD-ROM players in the mail or they couriered them down because people didn't necessarily have them in their, in their computers. So what we built was, in essence, a catalog to search by vehicle, make, model, and then you'd get the drawing and you would see it, work with it, et cetera. That was kind of the Got it. So this is this is when you guys are kids. How does it evolve from there? So one of the one of the large entities, it was Federal Mogul, which is a, you know, was at that point six billion dollar out of parts manufacturer, champion spark plugs, Moog suspension, some of the names you'd know if you're kind of you know a gearhead. Yeah. Um they came back and said, listen, we need we need to do that so that we could share our drawings, but we also need to control changes to those. So changes to our engineering drawings and um, let people search for them, our OEM customers. So let's say the the Fords or the Canadian Tires or the Pep Boys. So not only did we do that, at this point, it was already now web-based. So now we're, we're, we're doing all this in, in a web application that was kind of hacked together again um, with, with blood, sweat, and tears and, and, and some chutzpah. And, um, just for the one client, though, just this giant. Auto this was this the, this one client that was a custom built application for them. It was the most rudimentary. I, I mean, it was pretty sophisticated for for the time and what what I was able to build. But I would say it was purpose built for someone, not a SaaS application. It was it was custom rolled out. Um, we were subsequently able to go back and sell to them the SaaS application, uh, but but again, sort of that that whole process is what led to us identifying this need, and and rolled into one of the strategies that I think we had then, and and with some of the other businesses we've worked on, which is if you've got a whale brand, it's a lot easier to go to other companies and say, hey, these guys are already using this, let us let us show you. So you know we we built credibility with that. Um, and did you daisy chain your way to other brands then? Like, wh- how did it evolve from there? Yeah. So the so the the Federal Mogul project was that custom project. It was you know the foundation for a conversation I had with Max uh, about you know why don't you leave what you're doing at the bank and you know let's let's go sit in a sweaty room above a CNC factory and start building you know technology that we can go and say look Federal Mogul's using it go to other automotive parts manufacturers, eventually other industries as well. Um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was the process by which we, we started with a, a specific engagement and then used that as the foundation to justify you know, putting our efforts into a SaaS application. Did Federal Mogul ask for exclusivity? Was there some suggestion that you 
owed them exclusivity because they helped you develop it? No. I mean, it was, we, you know, we built something for them. The, the subsequent day to stay offering was, you know, encapsulate a small piece of what we did or what I did uh, specifically for Federal Mogul, but it was just a part. It was a tiny bit of it. I think we had engineering change order sharing or something along those lines. When we built day to stay, it was, okay, there are multiple processes that a manufacturing engineering organization has to manage. Let's Let's kind of abstract back to really different workflows and data needed in those workflows. And let's build to the potential of, of, of what they may require. So it did include engineering change orders and it did include, you know, some, some approval workflows on quality side of things. But with data stay, the, the goal was you got a new product introduction, you've got, you know, engineering changes, you've got quality control. It was, let's build this modular tool where you can address any kind of workflows. Um, so in, in some ways, it was a workflow management system, but very vertically focused on managing a product through its life cycle, which, which is what DataStay was, a product lifecycle management platform. Product lifecycle management. Is that a thing? I've never heard of that. Is, is, are there other players in that space? Yeah. So th this kind of goes into, as we, we built something very custom, we started to look at the space. And it was really characterized by Siemens, um, uh, what's it called, PTC, and other massive entities, Dassault Systems. So these were guys that were managing these real complex projects like Airbus development or full vehicle development. So any mid-sized entity had to either had that or spreadsheets. I mean that that was that was our status quo that we were that that we would have to deal against was um, the spreadsheet. A lot of these guys wouldn't implement those kinds of tools. And with those, those being the alternative, it was kind of easier to position us. Now, that said, at that time, there were a couple of other startups that were sort of tackling the mid-market arena solutions, which was subsequently bought by PTC, I believe. Um, there was Agile. And there was another, another one, which is, again, relevant to our story. Uh, but the name slips my mind. I'm sure it'll pop up as as we kind of go through. I think it's so, okay. So you you got you do this one project for the big auto parts manufacturing company. You start to realize there's demand for this more broadly. How did you finance this business? Was this just bootstrapped, or did you have outside investors? What was that like? So initially, it was bootstrapped. Um, Max and I, like I said, we just sat, hammered away, built built something out. Our first target was obviously to go back to Federal Mogul with this new tool and move them from that custom developed offering to a subscription. How did um, you guys divvy up the equity, you and Max? Did you guys go 50-50? We, just, we just ended up going 50-50. Yeah. Okay. But but going from custom where you get an upfront payment and you, you know, like to more of a product-based, like that's expensive. So- it sounds like there were some investors along the way. So we, we did bring on some money. And, and the funny part is, is that the investment came from the guy that fired me from my first and first job, I guess. L let's call it that. What's so the during, backstory there? Well, so, so after business school, um, we had this project that was called uh, 601. Um, and what that was, was a consulting project. You found a, a target client. You went in there, you helped them. I actually did a couple of them. 
Uh, one was was interesting. It was a technology company in Israel, so we got free trips to there in London, which and Boston, which was cool. Um, but I had worked for this gentleman, Robert. Um, I was there while I was sort of doing the federal mogul maintenance work on the side, and eventually that was a startup that that kind of hit hit the end of its runway. It had raised a ton of money. Um, so left there or got fired there is the joke that me and Robert always say. Uh, and when we when we kind of wanted to take this to the next level, went back to Robert and Robert and some of his uh, network put in uh, a bit of money. So a nominal amount of money that we raised from from uh, how much did the company have to give up? I think we gave up. I want to say it was 10 or 20. Got it. So relatively small. You it was a relatively small amount. Yeah. Still the majority shareholders. So where does it go from there? I mean, how did, how did the market receive this product lifestyle management software? So, you know, we started there. Um, one of the things that we were able to do is sort of penetrate the breaking world. Um, maybe this goes to the conversation about niching down, but everybody that sort of was in that space, we were familiar with. We even had the the company that, assigned the number. So every time you buy a piece of friction or a break, it's got a number called an FMSI number. That's how they use to understand interoperability. So, you know, if, if I've got a Porsche 911, I know what the FMSI numbers are for the products that would, would fit there. So we actually used our tech to build their catalog and, you know, got pretty entrenched in that community and started serving some of the other players in that space. Um, so cool. I mean, like it, it strikes me, you know, like uh, just personal reflection is we, we, we think about entrepreneurship as being about, you know, like, how do I launch the next Tesla or how do I launch the next whatever? <laughs> but, but there, the, 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 there are so many businesses in the world that are in these kind of tiny little pockets of the market. And here you are taking not only parts manufacturing, but now we're into like break parts manufacturing yeah. and developing software to help manage the life cycle of those parts. It's amazing. It's a great niche. And it's, it's yeah, it, it was one of those, those funny things where we just knew this space. We were at the industry events, like a little, I literally knew everybody in that space. Um, yeah. And a lot of it was in Toronto then. So, you know, there were a bunch Magna, of guys. Magna Auto Parts was a major auto parts manufacturer just north of Toronto, right? Right. So Magna was huge. We never directly dealt with Magna. So we, you know, from, from that tiny break space, we obviously then started to try and find other industries. We had some guys that were, you know, making components for printers. Uh, the biggest wind turbine manufacturer in the States called Clipper, where you know, the famous, uh, there was Obama giving a speech there. So they were probably our biggest single customer in terms of number of seats. Uh, and we did a ton of stuff with them, managed so much of, of their workflow and their manufacturing. And actually the coolest part, I think, of all of it was we went down to Houston to see one of their suppliers at one point. And the number that our tool assigned, the part number, we saw it on this big, I think it was a gear or some, some kind of transmission component. And you see the thing that's stamped out, on it, so that that was one of the coolest parts of of that experience. Um, yeah, tell tell me about the people. Like, so it's you and Max in the beginning. How does it evolve over time? Me and Max, obviously, building out past sort of that beta first version needed developers. So that that's really where most of our our um, our hires were were in in development. 
uh, brought developers on. We had a couple folks on the sales and, and marketing side over time. Uh, but really, the, the majority of it was servicing clients, which, which I did quite a bit. And, and, and I think in that space, you need a lot of industry expertise as well, um, just in terms of what I, don't, I never like using the term best practice, but, but understanding how to leverage the, the, the workflows and take what they're doing on a day-to-day that might be in a spreadsheet and sort of move it to an approval type workflow process, which is very typical nowadays or, or people are more accustomed to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Still, still Did you and Max have an end game in mind when you started this thing? I mean, I think our end game was always, you know, do something on your own. Um, but it was, yeah, it was some kind of exit or some kind of growth uh, where, you know, we were, we were generating income for ourselves. You know, they always talk about lifestyle business versus, um, you know, a big bang kind of thing. And I mean, we always kind of talked about it all, but I think we were kind of more heads down, right? We, we didn't really think too much about that end game. There were a couple of different times where we would pitch at some of these events for sort of the bigger financing. And, you know, those were the times where it forced you to think, okay, well, you know, what's the outcome? What's the end game? And I think, I think what we always sort of understood was there are the key components in product lifecycle management, which was, you know, I got to make the product, I got to manufacture it. And there were, there were massive players that, that own that. You, you would never touch it. So we were doing a lot of workflow and, you know, data management around the execution. So we always assume that it would be a partnership of some sort with those types of entities. So if I had to go and, and do a pitch and talk about What's the end game or the outcome? It probably would have been an acquisition or a, you know, a licensing deal or something like that with one of those players that really owned the 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 audience uh, more so than than what we would have. These these manufacturing companies. Yeah, the the Autodesks or the PTCs or or anybody that was entrenched in these these companies because they needed those kinds of tools. To actually make the product, not just make it better or manage the yeah the work. How many employees were you at? Were at your peak? I think we were just about nine, so nine ten. Um, used a little bit of of external resources, but we're about ten people. Got it. It's a relatively small team at, at yeah. this point, and and early in in the game. What 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 happened? Like, like, tell me the story about how the acquisition happened. Like, what was the was there a trigger of some sort? Maybe just walk me through the story. Yeah, so I think that's that's the the kind of interesting part of the whole story in that, you know, I remember I was in San Francisco when I emailed somebody I knew at at Autodesk. Um, for the I think it might have been a, a family vacation. I don't remember why I was in San Francisco, but nevertheless, ended up spending a lot of time there after the fact. Um, and Autodesk, of course, is the is the makers of people know it for AutoCAD is the is the software some so people may have heard of, right? AutoCAD, sort of the '80s through now, cash cow. But Autodesk, if you step back, I mean, uh, I mean, they're everywhere, and they're really an awesome company. I have nothing but praise for them. But any movie visual effect, they ended up buying everything there. So you watch a movie; they win Academy Awards for that that type of technology. They bought Maya, mm-hmm. Soft Image, and so forth. Anything to do with construction, so Revit and um, uh, you know the space about uh, uh, data around buildings and so forth. 
you know, the, some of the greatest hospitals have been modeled out with with Revit and some of their other tools. Hmm. And then again, through to, to to the manufacturing side of things and simulation and testing. Um, massive entity, very cool, um, and uh, was happy to spend some time there for sure. So okay, so but look, back to the story. You're in right. San Francisco. So I'm in San Francisco now. At this point. You know, one of our key engineers came to my office, was kind of tearing. He's like, okay, I got to go. I'm going to find something else. I've been with us for a while. So now we're, you know, we're starting to think, okay, what's going on here? It's, you know, this guy left. He was kind of a core piece of it. And, you know, Max and I start to have the conversation. Of, okay, well, well let, let's try and reach out to some people. We need some partnerships. Maybe we go back to Autodesk. I had, I had a, a, a small relationship with a, with a guy out there. But when I was in San Francisco, it reminded me because I knew he was he was based out of there. I said Brian, hey, let's 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 have a chat. Let's catch up. We'll do a show and tell kind of thing. I want to see if we can we can help out with uh, a tool that he had sold them, which was called uh, Vault, uh, which is where all the CAD drawings were, were vaulted. If you want to think about it like that. So I remember I got back to Toronto. I was like, okay, let's do a show and tell. Do a show and tell. Show him the tool. Um, specifically, I think he saw the Clipper wind power, what we had set up for them. So these massively complicated workflow processes for new product introduction and, and quality control. And he's like, yeah, this is pretty interesting. I want to set up a call. I think it was within the week with his SV, uh, with his VP of product. Another guy was in Michigan. And at this point, I was like, okay, this guy might be interested. Now we're talking to the guy the next week. And he's like, yeah, this is pretty interesting. Um, we're going to have another call. I think it was another week with the SVP, which is out in Portland. And literally from that one demo, it flew to that. Now, the backstory was they were in the process. Okay, let's go a tiny bit further back. The CEO of Autodesk at that point had famously said he would never enter the product lifecycle management space. and was more into the tools, the creative tools. And what ended up happening is for one reason or another, they decided that they were gonna buy a company that was a competitive company. To yours? To ours, right? Okay. There, there was not even any kind of consideration of us. Now we had some attention because we were in a Forrester Wave article. So, you know, it gave us a little bit of credibility and whatnot, but I get this, I get this, or, or I, after I reach out, we get on the phone, go through these these steps what i hear after the fact is they were just about to in essence pull the trigger on this competitive tool but they had uh an issue with the ceo for okay. whatever reason it was a person it seemed like a personal issue um wasn't a good cultural fit is the way i think they describe the kids mm. describe it nowadays so from that perspective it was you know luck and i guess hard work at the same time so we just kind of reached out at the at the right time, um, rather than you know having this regimented approach to trying trying to find an acquire. Let me just see if I I'm just trying to get under, underneath something. You, you said you had a, a key engineer leave the team. Uh, did did they give you a reason for leaving, or did they, did they find something else, or was there some reason that they left? I mean, I think he had been with us for a while. And, you know, as somebody who's at the cusp of his career, a young dude, I think he wanted to find something new. We still have a great relationship with him. Um, and what was it about him leaving that made you think, 
now's the time to initiate a partnership. Were you trying to plug in the whole of, of his absence with some more engineering depth? No, I mean, I guess if I step back and, and kind of revisit the way I described it, I think there were a couple of things going on at that time. Um, we were focused on product and servicing customers. We didn't bring on additional money. We weren't really focused on the growth side of things, or we were, but it wasn't resulting at a speed that we wanted to because we were so focused on servicing relatively large customers at that point. So now it's okay, well, I got to go back to the drawing board, find a person. Um, so that that's distracting Max from some of the work that he's doing. And I, I think you kind of get to one of those points where so maybe, maybe it was a down point in our in our existence. Let's put it that way, more mm -hmm. than him leaving specifically. It was just one of the pieces of the puzzle. Kind of um, emotional ebb in the company's kind of yeah. The the ebb and flow, it was it wasn't in the in the best part. It's like, what are we gonna do with this? Are we gonna continue on and so forth? So I, I and, think and it was what, that. And, and what are you and Max pulling out of the company this time? Is, is this like a lifestyle business where you're sitting high on the hog and taking all the profits or are you guys pouring everything back in or like how, how, how are you and Max kind of? No, we're, you know, we're, out? we're not living the life of, uh, you know, the dream life. Let's put it no that Larry way. Larry Ellison rich with the big boats. No, no yachts, no, you know, no massive, massive excitement. I mean, listen, we were, we were pulling out a decent amount to have a, a, a normal living. Right. I think at that point I bought a new house and, uh, no kids yet, different, different lifestyle, you know, just got married just around then kind of thing. So, I mean, we had, we had what we needed, but we weren't, we weren't at the state where it was. Got it. Excellent. So you reach out to Autodesk and they're like, seem to be pretty keen and accelerating this up from the guy in Michigan to the guy in Seattle. And so this is starting to kind of move. What's What's going on in your head at this point? Like, what's your sort of headspace? So, so let me just add to that last point, which is I think what was important is that we had a champion there who mm. saw the value in what we were doing and was really impressed by it in order to, to bubble it up the chain. I think that's an important piece uh, to the conversation. But in terms, okay, so now stepping back, what was going on in our heads? Uh, it was a chat with Max. This is kind of what happened. We're going to go and talk to these guys. I think within a couple of weeks, we also drove down to Novi, Michigan, to their office there to kind of talk about what this may or may not look like. Um, was it still a partnership discussion at this point? At first, it was a partnership discussion. And then it was basically, listen, you know, the SVP was was. You know, he had that mill. His name was Buzz. I don't know if he was in the military, but it was. Listen, we're not partners, okay? So we're gonna figure out if this makes sense or not, and that's it. It was that. That was basically what was said. So we kind of had the idea of what the end game was there, and the question was: Is there a fit? Is is this going to work? To which you assumed he meant, we're not partners. If, if no, we're gonna buy this. We buy companies. That that that's kind of our our game. So that was and that's what Buzz said. Pretty much. I can't remember if it was in those exact words, but if not, it was pretty damn close to those exact words. But, but you and Max left that meeting knowing, okay, if this is going to happen, this isn't going to be some strategic partnership. They're going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at that point, we kind of knew and you know, we were thinking about different numbers in our head and how that might change things or not. And, and you know, 
Did I you guys have a number? Like, did you have a magic number? You like, if we could get this, we'd hand over the keys I mean, tomorrow. We, I, again, I think at that point we're like at any number that had you know six zeros on it was already something that was exciting to us. So, whatever it was going to be would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, because you guys are relatively early stage, still like smallish. It got, makes sense. Um, one other question: When you went to the product uh, person, the first one, not the VP in Michigan and not the senior vice president, um, the military guy, but the initial guy, like who is sounds like he or she was fairly in the bowels of the organization. Not, yeah, not a not a huge. I'm curious about that because I guess people at that level wouldn't necessarily have the experience to to know the M&A strategy of a billion dollar company like was there a sense that you were you were kind of maybe walking into a bit of a trap in that that person could have taken your idea and and maybe said that's great. Thanks for sharing the the, the uh, software with us. We can create this in a weekend with all the engineers we've got. Was there any sense that you might be sharing a little too much in that meeting? So I I, I don't think so. Let let me kind of roll back to Autodesk because it's a unique a unique environment. I think there are companies like Autodesk and Adobe and so forth that are that, that are characteristically acquirers, right? Uh, so what do I mean by that? This guy was actually acquired, I think, 10 years before us. So he'd been there for a while. He'd also participated in a number of acquisitions. That, that was largely their MO. I mean, starting from scratch at an entity of this size, I mean, it, it, it's the innovator dilemma. So they, they're an acquirer. We, we knew that, or maybe in hindsight, I know that. So the idea that they might steal our idea or technology, I mean, I think that was in every conversation when you're sort of young and, and early, you think that. But the reality of it is what we built was, was a pretty substantial asset and platform. You can't flip that over in, in a day, right? Um, what, why? What was so valuable? Because again, I mean, taking a bunch of spreadsheets and putting them in a hosted application, I'm simplifying, yep. is not is not super sophisticated work, but you obviously had some unique IP or some client relationships that made it more valuable, hard, like defensible. Do you know, do you know what I mean? So, so I think the use cases of the client really illustrate how elaborate the technology was. I mean, as a foundation, look, nowadays you can go and build a CRM competitor to Salesforce. Can you do contact management? Can you do you know, a couple of workflows? Sure, there's hundreds of those tools. But you're not building Salesforce, right? The the foundation. I mean, this this might go into some of the listeners. You know, might be yelling at their at their uh, speakers now. But <laughs> I, I guess I'm trying to illustrate the point with with some of that history and and even the technical debt and all of that. There's a lot of learnings and things that are built into the tool, and you can't just flip it over the next day. And I don't think Autodesk would have done that. Um, I don't think they ever were. The fact that they were already looking at alternative tools. To bring in and play before they spoke to us, uh, I think indicated that also. So, God, I want to make sure I got the right the, the guy in Seattle. Did you say his name was Buzz, like B U Z Z? It might have been a nickname, um, but his name was Buzz. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. I can just imagine the crew cut. And, like and the, you know what? 
he, he did have a pretty a pretty buzz. But <laughs> there you go. So. So Buzz says, like, we're not into partnering. If we're interested, we're going to buy you. And, and you and Max get the message. What yep. happens next? So now we're kind of in this phase. I want to say it's a little bit before any kind of due diligence or whatnot. Um, we are kind of having a couple of little conversations. Uh, I think that was when we went down to, to Novi to kind of figure out how this might look and what it does and so forth. Um, but then I remember reaching out to, to someone on their end. And this is, you know, you just asked the question about, you know, shadiness or, or you know, something that I should look forward. Some, we should be looking at when you go through a process like this. So obviously we had this, and I might be mixing up the timelines if this is in the due diligence part or before, I, I'm going to say it was before because we obviously had built on a modern modern data stack. It was web-based. It was Java and so forth. It had nothing to do with um, the old Microsoft.NET structure that most of what Autodesk built on. So actually, I think our biggest obstacle kind of came from some of the folks internally on the dev side hmm. that had an idea of how the tool worked. But maybe we're worried more about how that might impact you know the the skills and the technology they had been using the the other company that they had looked at and i was thinking I'm kind of telling you this in hindsight was a .net solution and it was okay we're going to bolt it on and we'll incrementally increase this with what they were looking at with data stay it was it was entirely different right in in that space all these tools did have to eventually work together but it was a web based application completely different uh, from what they were really working and selling on. So that's where I think behind the scenes, there was a little bit of, this isn't the right thing. Why don't we use the one that has the CEO that you guys aren't biggest fans of, et cetera. And eventually those guys got moved into other roles from, from my understanding. Um, but that was sort of one of those obstacles that I, I believe it was a chat I had with one of those three folks um, on their side that kind of mentioned it. Um, so that was sort of a hidden obstacle, if you will. Yeah, that's good for our listeners to hear because no matter what industry you're in, you're going to have the people buying the companies who are the senior you know, M&A folks. And, but then you also have the people who are going to be in charge of ultimately integrating right. your company into theirs. And if they feel like that's going to be hard work <laughs> or that it's not a good fit, they can quietly kind of mess up a deal, uh, you know, they, they do have an influential voice at the table. Yeah. It, it's the people you don't necessarily think of, right? Um, I think integration and, and the challenges of integration, which are probably not, not as, as well thought of ahead of time as they are after the fact. I think in due diligence, that definitely comes up. But um, that was one of the concerns that, that they expressed within their leadership conversation. And I remember we were having like a team lunch and then I, I got a call from Buzz finally because I was trying to figure out what was going on. And he told me what's going, you know, the backstory. And I'm like, yeah, none of that matters. Let's, I don't think I said it that way, but, you know, let's, let's keep this going, et cetera. And, and it, it did get, keep going, obviously. So. And so when did the, the first offer come through? Like when did the Spectre evaluation come up? Did they send you an LOI? Did they ask you how much you want for it? So they didn't ask anything. They sent an LOI. Um, with their, you know, 
M&A teams and experience. They said, this is what we're doing. Actually, I think it was on the phone because Max and I kind of, you know, cheered silently in the background because it was a number that was different than what we, you know, just pick a random number out of out of thin air. So we did the, you know, yay kind of thing. Um, so sorry, we, you you and Max had a had a we had a call with the phone on mute. <laughs> I, I don't even know if we had it on mute. We were talking to to Tony, who was running the uh, uh, the corporate M and A side of things. There basically told us this is what the what the scenario is. Um, this is the LOI that's coming. This is the the valuation and the dollar amount. And yeah, we were we were happy at that point. From- and I know we have to be a little sensitive around the number itself. So, what was the the multiple of revenue you and Max were hoping to get for it? And then what was the offer? I think we were hoping for like a three four and got like a ten to twelve somewhere in that range. Wow. No wonder you guys are high five in the background. That's awesome. Yeah. So you were thinking three to four times top line revenue, which of course software companies often traded a multiple of their ARR. So that that makes sense. And and the the offer came through at 10 to 12, something in that neighborhood. Yeah. Wow. And at that point, as a as a Canadian, you kind of understand this, the very rare time where the Canadian dollar was worth more than the American dollar, this is also US dollars, um, was upside down. So we tried to factor that in. That was the only thing we sort of gave a little bit of pushback and they're like, guys, this is what's on the table. So. And and so you pushed back and said, hey, you know, Canadian dollars worth a little more than the US dollar. So can you sweeten this a little bit? And they're like, no, no, this is the offer. <laughs> this is how it goes. And uh, so they had one market clearing offer and you attempted to sort of nibble at the edges. But and what what was their what did they say or do that led you to to believe that there was no extra room there like how did how did they what was the tone of voice they use or what was the way like this is <laughs> this is kind of a take it or leave it offer we got it we got a bite here because there's not much like how did they communicate that to you yeah i think it was just on the conversation um there's that this is it we're not we're not because i think we will we we'd ask for something around the exchange rate they're like we're not going to do any of that this is the deal you know that and and to their to their credit they don't come in and low ball and try and play a bunch of games with you we knew it was a it was a good offer uh for us and you know messing around trying to trying to fight with it i already you know i guess maybe one of the things in the back of my mind was that history around another entity that they were looking at and the, the the interaction with their ceo and so forth so i knew it was fair i mean they prefaced it with this is this is fair good deal um so we didn't really want to mess with it we gave it we yeah. gave it a bit of a shot but yeah yeah and and did they sort of hint at the idea that you know this is a fair offer but if you don't want it, there's three other companies that also do product lifecycle management that we're happy to go buy. So no, I, I think it was, a, it was a very cordial relationship. Okay. There was not, there was none of that. Nobody was trying to, you know. We knew it was fair. They knew it was fair. We we at this point we we did want to get something done. We thought it was exciting. And the funny thing is, is like I said, I started 
distributing AutoCAD drawings all those years ahead of time. So that was the funny full circle. So that, that's what I really liked about uh, uh, Autodesk in that case. Yeah, it it, it sure came all uh, full circle for sure. So where does it go from there? So LOI looks really good. You, you nibble at the edges. There's no take there. So you're like, all right, you guys decided to move forward. Did you go back to Robert and share the offer with him? What was his reaction? So I, I think the first person I called was my dad, just because a lot of this happened around AutoCAD, which he knew. He's the one who really pushed me to do that first project. So I thought it was funny. I remember calling him, I was driving in the car. Um, we went back, I think we went Sorry, back. What did your dad say? Oh, that's great, good. Thanks <laughs> for dinner on great. Friday. I mean, that, 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 yeah, I mean, good for you. Was, he, was it a solemn sort of like, that sounds very level-headed. Was it like, it's not every day your, your son calls you and says, I'm going to sell my business. Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm sure he was happier. I don't, I don't remember. We were in the car. I was very much here. I'm just telling you this story. And um, I think we were, I don't think we had been done yet. So maybe that's part of it. Um, mm. I don't remember the after the done part. But our next steps were, I, I went back to Robert, obviously, and one of our other advisors, because I didn't, I, we didn't have, the last time we used a lawyer was to do in corp docs, maybe. Actually, I don't think so. I think oh I probably we probably did them like in the city office on our own ages before. That's not true. We used somebody obviously for shareholder agreement and so forth, but it hadn't been at a lawyer in a in a long time. And uh said, Okay, here's what we gotta do. You guys gotta start looking at the LOIs and giving us some advice. You've been through it help us help us navigate this and they put us in touch obviously with with the lawyer who helped us through everything and really were the eyes and ears uh for us um that'd be robert what was robert's reaction to the offer value i think it was good i mean those guys those guys got a piece of money out of it they're they're happy from it was their like return on investment like they 10x what they put in 10x wow yeah i'd imagine he'd be pretty happy with that Yeah, so they 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 got they got their money out, um, you know, and 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 so it ended up. I think it was four guys altogether that put in their share from for the, for that little amount. But they, um, I hadn't heard from them in years, with the exception of Robert and Pierre. But but the other two I didn't even know they existed. Now it's funny after the fact, everybody comes out of the woodwork and has opinions, but. That said, um, they were very helpful, Robert and Pierre, in terms of in terms of that process, um, setting up, doing the the due diligence. I remember I was actually in Italy, um, walking through, and I was going back and forth uh, to sort that out when we did due diligence. Uh, it was like a previously booked family trip kind of thing. What was the trickiest part of diligence? Um, you know, you just kind of have to pull everything together. I don't know that it was tricky. I think it's the anxiety around it. You know, what are they going to find? What's going to set them off? Um, and I would say less on the business side and more on the technology side. Um, you know, they found we licensed uh, some charting library or something like that. We can't buy it. You guys got to remove this and replace it. So there were those types of things. But that said, the, the process was pretty quick. Um, was this life changing for you? Um, no, I think when 
as you change things, our life changes was financial. You just grow to that point, depending on who you are. Um, so yes, it was life changing in a number of ways. You know, it's something that's always on your resume, let's call it sure. um, the experience. Um, you know, monetarily things change, at least for a while. It all depends on, on what you do with it. Um, but it was, it was awesome experience. Um, and again, I, it wasn't something we set out and planned to do. And maybe that changed a lot of, of the perspective. I think there are going to be folks that are, you know, maybe they're at a point where they are actively trying to exit for one reason or another. That step of, of exiting is, is maybe different. Like we, we went through almost a, a whirlwind relationship or marriage or whatever the terming term is. Um, so while we had time to think about it while we were in it, we didn't really think about it until it was done. And, and then even then we were already now integrated and working within Autodesk. And one of the interesting things was, remember, they didn't want to go in there as, as um, getting into the PLM space or acquiring because of our, you know, the size of who we were and whatnot, they brought it in almost under the radar as a tool that they were going to build internally. So we had this weird sort of, you can't really tell anybody what's going on here. Um, you know, the, the brand didn't, you know, we introduced it at one of their big events, but nobody really knew who we were and what we did kind of thing. So that, that in and of itself was interesting also. And maybe that's why we didn't have any kind of other than internally celebration or anything like that. Um, it was okay. Well, now we're here. And how did you deal with it with the employees? So everybody that was part of the deal went over to Autodesk. They were hired, right? So the acquisition was an asset acquisition. So they bought the asset, meaning the technology, and the. Oh, I mean, one of the things that was 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 interesting is we, we had to transition some of the customers over um, to new paper and the employees were let go and brought on at Autodesk as, as new employees. So everything was almost transferred to new paper, if you want to think about it that way. New employment agreements and so forth. What was their reaction to the announcement that you guys had sold the company? I mean, I think everybody thought it was interesting. Um, there was we we didn't have like an employee stock ownership program or anything like that, so it wasn't like anybody really benefited from it. If I'm calling calling it like it is, um, but I think they were happy to go from, are these guys going to do payroll this week, which is maybe a couple of days late, to okay, well now I'm working at a publicly traded company with RSUs and stock options and probably close to maybe not double, but a lot more money than they were. Well, and some of them, I, I would say probably double the money that they were getting with us. So there's no reason why they weren't, they weren't excited about this opportunity. Um, Makes sense. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? I, uh, I've got a couple of questions about uh, uh, that should just take a quick uh, answer if you're sure. up for it. Um, what was the most questionable tactic, slimy, to use uh, a word that a potential acquirer or investor tried to play on you? Again, in our case, I think the sliminess came from behind the scenes with, with a, a group of engineers that wanted maybe more to protect their domain, 
then move the company forward, which was yeah. unknown until after the fact. So I think that'd be the, the slimiest thing. Biggest mistake you made during the process of selling that you'd like to do have a do-over on or a mulligan? I mean, I would have maybe thought about potentially trying to to push back or do a little bit more negotiation. I think it might have been futile in this case, but I think we were maybe blinded by a number and less focused on potentially going back with with a counter. Mm. Uh, emotional uh, highs and lows. So what was the emotional high and what was the emotional low of selling? The emotional high is that as an entrepreneur, as a startup guy, you're always trying to validate. This is ultimate validation. Um, lows are in that in this particular scenario that it's going to fall through, and and you still have to be maintaining your business while you go through it because nothing's guaranteed. The diligence process. What's one thing you wish you'd known about selling your business that you now know today? Um, I. I I, I don't know that it would be the, the, the selling part, but it's it's the experience of working with the acquirer after would be something to consider. Because yeah, usually you're not, usually you, you are going to work where you've been acquired for at least a year or two, whatever that might be. What was that like for you? Uh, it was challenging, uh, to be honest with you, because you're going from ownership of something and, and really living and breathing this entity to being somewhat on the sidelines and and maybe some of your your ideas and thoughts are questioned until you know th they they start to experience it directly right they they went into a new industry um so that was that was a challenge for me and i feel like there was limited ownership and i think when we were about to leave the buzz had asked us why don't you guys stay and build some stuff where you have ownership i think that was maybe the the challenge to learn, maybe to let go, but still be involved. Yeah. And, and did you have like an earnout or like an equity rollover or how did they compensate you during that time? No, we, we didn't. And to be honest with you, we didn't even have to stay for the two years. If I remember correctly, there was no contractual obligation to stay. We stayed. We did leave out at about two years because as technology startup guys, you know, you like to pull the rug under you. You know, a few years down the road, you you question that decision. Um, but that said, uh, we we could have left. We could have left whenever we wanted. We had really good opportunities to stay. It, it, I can never say anything negative about my experience at Autodesk. I think it's it's an awesome company. They do amazing things as well. Sounds like they're an experienced acquirer. You had Robert on your team as someone to bounce ideas off, to give you guidance. Was there any other tools? Uh, any other resources you could point our listeners to that might help them get familiar with the process of selling like any I don't know, courses uh anything that you can point people to that would be practical resources i mean i think talking to somebody that goes through it listening to to a show like yours obviously makes a lot of sense there are so many unique aspects to each of these processes um depending on the acquirer depending on the way that's that it's approached I don't know that I had anything that I went went specifically to other than potentially a book about someone. And to be honest, with you, I wouldn't even remember what I which book it was. It's Got what it. do the experiences look like? Due diligence you can look at, know what to expect ahead of time, but the 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 entire process. I mean, you want to read Chris Voss's book on negotiation? Sure. 
Is it going to help you? Maybe. But until you're in it, it's, it's one of those things that's hard to plan for. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. In fact, we had Chris Voss on the show. I know, right? and that's why three months ago, which is a great. He point. was, uh, he was, he was fun. He was wonderful. But, uh, uh, but you're right. There are some things you just can't prepare for. Um, tell me, you bought yourself a trophy. You sell your business for ten, twelve times revenue. I'm guessing there's a trophy here. Uh, yeah, my I, I bought a car. What'd you buy? A nine eleven. Nice. You still have it? No. Uh, it's it's now part of a kitchen. Um, <laughs> My wife also got hit in an 18-wheeler in it, which messed it up oh, a little wow. bit too. Uh, she's okay. fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. It just happened to drag her. So I, I kind of cooled it off. I was always a big car guy, so that, that's, that was my, my little personal gift. Treat to yourself. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'm super grateful for you sharing this story with our listeners. Is there a place that folks, if they wanted to reach out, um, can reach you? Is LinkedIn the best, Michael? Or what's LinkedIn what's the best? is the best? Um, you can reach me at uh, you know one of the current projects we're working on. So it's my first name, first initial, last name. M. Lieberman at Lasso L A S S O O dot I O. Uh, but LinkedIn's the best place. Um, right. Search Michael Lieberman. Data stay. Trial fire last you you'll you'll find me. Awesome, and we'll put Michael's uh, contact information and his LinkedIn profile in the show notes at builtcell.com. Michael, thank you for doing this. With pleasure. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. And there you have it for today's podcast between John and Michael. If you enjoyed today's show, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms that you may or may not be as familiar with, I have shared links and definitions over in Michael's episode page, which you'll be able to find at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, I'd encourage you to nominate them. Head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you all again next week. 